Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. The final book of the Old Testament. And turn to Malachi 4, the final chapter of the Old Testament. And while you're turning there, let me say a special word of greeting to uh, guests that are with us this morning. Uh, We're very thankful that you're here. We love having guests here with us, and we certainly pray that you'll be blessed by your time with us this morning. Let me also say that if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one provided for you. Uh, They should be in the bottom of the seats in front of you, and if you want to use that, uh, you'll find where we're starting out this morning on page 802 in those Bibles, Malachi 4. Now, why did I have you turn there. Well, here we are more than 400 years before the days of the Gospel of Luke. As we've said before, Malachi is the last prophet that God will send before 400 years of silence. There will be no prophet in Israel for 400 years. And I just want us to see again what God's final word to Israel from the prophet Malachi was. So look at verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. The final words of the Old Testament. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Horeb is Sinai, by the way. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay, so imagine yourself walking down a path. And you come to a bridge. And before you step onto that bridge, you take a moment to look behind you and to see from where you've come. And then you look forward to see where it is that you're going. Well, here is Malachi and the people of Israel, and they're getting ready to step onto a bridge. And that bridge is the 400 years separating the Old Testament in our Bibles from the New Testament in our Bibles. This bridge is the blank page between your Old and New Testaments. But that blank page is four centuries of all kinds of historical events and activities and things that took place. But before Israel steps onto that bridge of the next 400 years of silence... God speaks to Malachi and he calls for Israel to turn around and to look back at where they've come. He says, remember the law. Remember Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. Israel, remember how I made a covenant with you and you made a covenant with me. And Israel, you promised that you would be my people and I promised that I would be your God. It's almost like a dad saying to a son, son, remember who you are. God is saying to Israel, remember how I've taught you. 
Remember how I've cared for you. Remember how you have been my people. And as you move forward, Israel, as you begin to cross this bridge, live as the people of God. Keep my ways. Remember my truth. Remember that covenant that we made together so many hundreds of years ago at Mount Sinai. So there's that looking back. Remember the law of God. Keep the law of God. And then Malachi turns the people of Israel forward and he has them look ahead. And what are they looking forward to? He says it's the great and awesome day of the Lord. What is this great and awesome day? Well, throughout the minor prophets, we learn that this day of the Lord is going to be a dramatic day in which God saves his people, exalts his people, blesses his people, and a day of great judgment on all who are against God, on all who are against his people. They will be destroyed. Israel has already seen God do amazing things in the past. Israel saw the plagues in Egypt. Israel saw the separating of the waters of the Red Sea. But the day to come is going to be even more astounding. And Malachi says to Israel, that's where you're headed. On that day, God will be seen as the true God. God's people will be delivered from her enemies. God's people will be exalted and the enemies of God will be destroyed. And the aftermath will be that there will be a kingdom and a king and God's people dwelling in peace forever. So that's what's coming, the day of the Lord. Now, we have more information about the day of the Lord than Israel did when she starts crossing that bridge in the days of Malachi. For example, we now know that instead of one coming of the Messiah... The day of the Lord is actually two comings of the Messiah with time in between. Uh, you see, for all of Israel's enemies, the greatest enemy Israel really ever had was her own sin and her own guilt before a holy God. Through the Messiah, God would work to save his people from their greatest enemy of all, which was his own holy wrath against their sin. And we now know that instead of salvation just being for the Jews, salvation is actually for all people who will share the faith of Abraham, not necessarily the blood of Abraham. And so the great day of the Lord includes at least 20 centuries now, of Jesus having come, redemption having been accomplished, the gospel going out into all the nations, the kingdom of God being built up through the work of missions and the planting of churches. And then finally, on the last day, when the last chosen child of God believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and the full number of the kingdom has been brought in, Jesus will return a second time to bring judgment on the world and to bring the ultimate salvation and exalting of God's people and that kingdom that will never end will be firmly established forever back in Malachi's day Israel did not know all that we know but they knew that the great day of the Lord was coming they knew that the Messiah would be at the center of it 
that it would be a wonderful day for God's people, that it would be a terrible day for God's enemies. And so this is what they're looking for. This is what they're longing for as they look across the bridge. The day of the Lord, it's coming. But Malachi says something else. He says that before the day of the Messiah, before the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, there's going to be another prophet that comes. It's kind of like Israel will be walking across this bridge and the bridge will just keep going and going and Israel's going to be wondering, is this bridge ever going to end? When is the day of the Lord ever going to get here? And Malachi says, when you see the prophet who is to come, that will be the sign that the bridge is ending and that the day of the Lord is at hand. And notice, God doesn't just say he's going to send any prophet. God says he's going to send Elijah. So Israel, as you're walking across that bridge and you haven't heard from God for a long time, when you see Elijah, that's your sign. The day of the Lord is at hand. The Messiah is coming. All that's been promised is going to be fulfilled. Now, what did that mean that Elijah was going to come as a prophet? Does that mean the actual Old Testament Elijah the, the Ahab and Jezebel Elijah, the Elijah that called down fire and destroyed the prophets of Baal. Is he going to be the one that comes again? Some people thought so. Remember, Elijah didn't die. He caught fire from heaven on a mountainside, right? As Rich Mullen says, he, he went away in a chariot of fire. So could it be that Elijah himself is going to come? And when we see Elijah, that means the day of the Lord is near. Some people thought so. Others thought, well, it's going to be a man like Elijah, a man with the, the spirit of Elijah, a prophet full of boldness, a prophet who's a godly man in a wicked age, willing to stand up against evil, wicked authorities in the midst of an evil culture. And then the last verse of the Old Testament, the final verse of the Old Testament tells us what this prophet will do just before the day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What does that mean? Uh, Calvin, many others in the past, thought that the fathers here referred to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They thought that the idea here is that through this prophet, God's going to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to the hearts of their fathers. That this will be a time when through this man, the people of Israel will return to the faith of Abraham, will return to the faith of Isaac, will return to the faith of Jacob. Another possibility is that the word to, do you see that little word to, the hearts of children to their fathers, the hearts of the children to their, yeah, the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of children to their fathers. That could be translated as with. So that instead of he will turn the hearts of the, children, of the fathers to their children, it would read he will turn the hearts of the fathers with their children. This is how John Gill reads it. This is Matthew Henry gives a nod to this. It's this idea that as this prophet would come and he would preach in boldness and suddenly both young and old, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters would find their hearts turning to the Lord together. That's a possibility. And then the, the third view takes this verse very literally. That what you will see is that as this prophet comes to preach, the hearts of the fathers, the parents, will be drawn towards the children. And that the hearts of their children 
will be drawn towards their parents and that this would show itself in greater love and care for one another within the context of the family, within the context of Christian homes as parents and children cared for one another and loved for one another. So which, which is true? Well, I, I do not know exactly which one specifically Malachi meant. But I do know this. All three of those interpretations proved true. That is, when this prophet would come, Israel's walking the bridge, they're waiting for the day of the Lord, they're waiting for the Messiah, here comes this prophet, he comes preaching a bold gospel, and what was going to happen? People who listened to him would have their hearts turned to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. People who listened to him would find that both young and old, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, would be coming to God together in repentance and faith. And what would be the fruit of that? A renewed emphasis on love and care in the home and in family life as fathers and sons and mothers and daughters turn their hearts towards one another. And then note the last words of the Old Testament, the very last words. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is Malachi's warning. And it's God's warning. Israel, when this prophet comes, make sure you listen to him. Make sure your heart turns. Make sure you heed this prophet's words and turn to the Lord. Because if you do not turn to the Lord, if your heart does not turn, it will be the end of Israel. This time, Israel, if you will not listen to my prophet, I won't just send you into exile and then bring you back later on. No, if you don't listen to this prophet, get ready for the day of the Lord. But it's not going to be a day of rejoicing for you. God will keep the promise he made at Mount Sinai. And part of the promise that God made at Mount Sinai was that if his people ever ceased to be his people, if his people forsook him, threw him off, chased after other gods, disregarded his word, he would destroy them. And as you and I will know, that's what happened. So we move across the bridge 400 years, right? Alexander the Great, the Greeks conquering Israel. We move past the Seleucids and Antiochus Epiphanes and the worship of Yahweh being outlawed in Israel and the temple of God being dedicated to Zeus and a swine being slaughtered and sacrificed there in the temple. We move past the Maccabean revolt, the Hasmoneans coming into power, the the beginning of Hanukkah. Uh, We move into these days now. When Rome rules Israel and a priest, a faithful priest from a little hill town in Judah has stepped into the holy place of the temple and on the most momentous day of his life, he's burning incense and he's praying to God on behalf of Israel. And as we've seen, suddenly after all these years, this old man, a priest called Zechariah, finds himself face to face with an angel. And not just any angel, Gabriel. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. 
Last week, we began focusing on what Gabriel told Zechariah about the miracle boy that was to be born to him. Now with Malachi 4 ringing in your ears. Pick up again in verse 13. Luke 1 verse 13. And hear Gabriel's message about this child that would be born. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so here is the big announcement. The day of the Lord is at hand. Because here comes the prophet that Malachi had spoken of 400 years before. Here comes the new Elijah. Here comes the one who will prepare the way for God's Messiah. Yes, it's a big deal that this prophet is even being born. But it is a bigger deal because of this. What comes after the prophet? The prophet is the sign of what's about to come. And what's about to come? The Messiah, the day of the Lord, salvation for God's people, destruction on God's enemies, the, the, the kingdom that will be established in peace forever. This child is the sign that all of that is now finally at hand, that the day of the Lord has come. These words of Gabriel tell us about John the man. And they tell us about John's ministry, and they tell us about John's mission. Last time, we noticed four truths about John the man. We saw his name would be John, that he would be great, mega, remember that word, mega, before the Lord. He would be consecrated to God's service, which is why he was not to drink alcohol. And he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's where we stopped that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I didn't get to make a couple of points that I think are very important about this fourth truth, so let me just say them real quick. Remember, we said it would be the Holy Spirit who would be the source of John's godliness. Right? Jesus said that among men born of women, none was greater than John the Baptist. Here is a man who was going to excel in holiness and faith and purity and gentleness and kindness and love and boldness and courage. Here was going to be a man of great godliness. But where would John's godliness come from? It would be from the Holy Spirit. But note that the Holy Spirit has the power to do gracious work. In a human soul, even when that person is very, very young. In John's case, the Holy Spirit came upon him and was at work in his life even before he was born. I think that's amazing. The Holy Spirit can come and work even in infants not yet born. 
The Puritans actually paid special attention to this verse. They pointed out that the Holy Spirit's usual way of bringing somebody to Christ was to change their heart as they heard the gospel. So what is the Spirit's usual way of saving people? Well, you have somebody who's at least old enough to hear the message of Christ crucified. And through the Holy Spirit, they recognize, I'm a sinner before a holy God. And by the Spirit, they call out on Christ for salvation, and they are saved. That's the way most people are saved. But they said, we can't rule out the possibility that sometimes the Spirit comes and causes somebody to be born again even before they're old enough to even understand human words. Um, there have been some, they are few, not many, there have been some in the history of the church who could not remember a time in their life when they did not love Jesus. Uh, folks who often grew up in Christian homes uh, who grew up hearing the preaching of God's word from their earliest years, and they simply could not look back and point to a time when Jesus was not precious to them, when Jesus was not sweet to them. All of this is to say, Mount Hermon, the Holy Spirit is not limited by the age of our children. The Spirit of God can come upon anyone at any age and pour out the grace of God upon their lives. The Spirit can come to any human being, even those with limited mental faculties, people who are mentally handicapped in even the most severe ways. The Holy Spirit has the power to come upon them and cause them to be born again. Remember what, John, what Jesus said in John 3. He said, the Spirit of God is like the wind. We do not, where he, not know where he comes from or where he is going. He blows upon God's people as he wills. The Holy Spirit makes his home in the hearts of God's chosen ones at God's appointed time. No matter how old or young or incapable a person is, God is able to fill that person with the Spirit of God. Now, there's no explicit evidence of a child being baptized in Scripture. Uh, some people think the household baptisms of Acts might have included children, but we're never told that a child was baptized. There's no explicit evidence in Scripture of a child being a member of a local church. And so there's a reason why we don't typically, at our church, baptize children. There's a reason why at our church we don't typically bring children into church membership. There just is no biblical evidence for any of that. But don't think that because that's the way we handle baptism and membership, that that means we think Jesus can't start working in someone's life till they're 13 years old. Because that's malarkey. Okay? We believe that the Holy Spirit of God can come and work in the heart of anyone, which is why we love having our children in here on Sunday mornings. It's why we love hearing them under the sound of gospel preaching. It's why we're praying for our kids. Oh, God, won't you save them? And we trust that there is nothing keeping God from working in the souls and the lives of our kids. Amen? The other point I think we need to make along these lines is this. Verse 15 of Luke chapter 1 is a powerful rebuke to those who would deny the personhood and dignity of the unborn child. 
We live in a culture that wants to say that an unborn child is merely a fetus, merely a clump of cells, that an unborn child is a thing and not a person. We are told that real personhood and real dignity doesn't begin until birth. And therefore, until a baby is born, that baby is disposable. That baby is only of value in the womb if the mother chooses to consider it as valuable in the womb. But if the mother doesn't consider it valuable, if the mother wants to dispose of that unborn baby, she should have the right to do so. That's the view of our culture. We see here that the Spirit of God was able to be at work in John the Baptist even as he was being formed in his mother's womb. This is almost certainly a reference to the Holy Spirit at work in John's soul. This is a reference to the Spirit causing John to already have a love for God and a desire for God that would be instilled. Instinctual to him, as instinctual as the desire for milk is, is in a newborn infant, John was born with an instinctual desire to know God and to love God and to serve God. The point is this, John had a soul and he had a soul even as an unborn child. John had a soul in his mother's womb. There's no indication in this passage that a child is only a child after the child is born. There's no indication that you don't become a true human being, body and soul, a true person, an object of God's love, a receiver of the Spirit's work until after you're born. No, here, even in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, we see that John has a soul upon which the Spirit is working. So we simply must beware those who claim that the Bible doesn't teach the personhood of the unborn child. It most certainly does. And before birth, God was working in John the Baptist. Okay, so John the man we've talked about. John's ministry. Let's look at this ministry that John is going to perform. What's it going to look like? Number one. He's going to turn many Israelites to God. Do you see that in verse 16? He's going to turn many Israelites to God. So as John would preach among the people of Israel, his preaching would be effective. The Holy Spirit was going to energize the preaching of John the Baptist so that people would hear his preaching and they would turn from their sins. They would remember the covenant they made at Mount Sinai and how they've broken that covenant. And they would cry out for mercy to God. And as a sign of their repentance, what would happen? They would be baptized. That's how John's going to get his nickname, right? John the Baptist. People are going to come. They're going to say, we have sinned. We have broken the covenant we made with God. We are deserving of his judgment. Oh, God, have mercy on me. I turn from my sins. And then John would baptize them to show that they were a repenter. One who was turning back to God. And throughout Israel, many Jews would hear John's preaching. And they would repent. And Mount Hermon, how we should pray that in the preaching of this church, no matter how poor it might be, that the Holy Spirit would energize it. That the Holy Spirit would bring people to repentance. And that we would see a movement of God among us. John was not sent to the Gentiles. The mission to the Gentiles would come later. John was sent to the Israelites to bring them back to the covenant they had made with God. 
And remember, the covenant at Mount Sinai was not a covenant of works. It was a covenant of grace in which the sins of the people would be provided for by sacrifices and a priesthood, all pointing to the Messiah. So as people are repenting, as people are turning to God, they really are truly being saved. They were being saved just as we are. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, though they did not yet know who that Christ would be. They would know soon enough when John would bear witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the earth. Well, second, we see in verse 17 that John will go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah. This proclamation was given to Zechariah and recorded for us so that we would understand. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi 4. John the Baptist is the prophet who is coming before the day of the Lord and the Messiah. Remember, Elijah lived and preached in the northern kingdom. That wicked kingdom governed by Ahab and Jezebel. So also, John is going to live and preach in the area of Galilee. The northern kingdom, what was once the northern kingdom of Israel. Elijah preached a message of judgment as the people followed wicked Ahab and Jezebel and worshipped false gods. So John is going to go throughout Galilee saying, you're following the Greek gods that now have Roman names. You're worshipping these false gods of the pagans. And if you continue to follow wicked Herod and his ways, judgment of God is going to come. In Elijah's day, people were chasing Baal. In John's day, they were chasing the Greek gods with Roman names. But it was the same picture. And just like Elijah was willing very courageously to speak truth even to Ahab and Jezebel, so we will see John the Baptist speak truth even before powerful men like Herod. Third, we see in Gabriel's message that John would turn the hearts of the father of the fathers to their children. And again, this helps us see that he is the fulfillment of that Malachi 4 prophecy. The people of Israel are going to hear John preach. They're going to turn to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to hear John preach. Young and old are going to turn to the Lord in repentance. They're going to hear John preach. And fathers and sons, mothers and daughters are going to show new love, new care for one another. We should remember... That in the days of Elijah, the people of God had become so wicked that they were practicing child sacrifice. In other words, in the days of Elijah, fathers were killing their own children in the worship of pagan gods. God would later say this through Jeremiah. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They have built their high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. So the worship of false gods had disrupted family life and turned the hearts of fathers against their children, turned the hearts of mothers against their children as they would sacrifice their own children to these pagan gods. You come to the days of John the Baptist and guess what's happening? Guess what's happening up at, uh, oh, right up there close to Mount Hermon. Up at Caesarea, Philippi, where they worship the Greek god Pan. 
And there's this, uh, right on the edge of the mountain, there's this, there's this swirling bit of water where the water rushes off the mountain and forms this kind of whirlpool. And they set up an altar to the Greek god Pan there. And what would they do? They would take their daughters, often teenage daughters, and they would throw them into the swirling pit of, of, of water. And if the blood came up, it was assumed that Pan was, was happy with that sacrifice. If the blood did not come up, they would throw another teenage daughter in. This is the culture. This is, this, is, this is just north of Galilee that that's happening in the days of John the Baptist. And so like Elijah, he is calling for a new look at what it means to be followers of God. And that includes parents loving your children, children loving your parents. Number four, we see that John's ministry would include the turning of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And we know from Proverbs and many other scriptures that the way of righteousness is the way of wisdom. It's never wise to sin. It's never wise to go against God's commands. So through John's preaching, people would turn back to the Lord and they would walk in the way of wisdom. What is the way of wisdom? The way of the commands of God. Returning to those good commands God had given them at Mount Sinai. Mount Hermon, how we should pray that God would do these same kinds of things through the preaching and the teaching here at our church. We should pray that people would be turned to God. We should pray that the spirit of Elijah, a boldness to proclaim truth, would always be found on this corner of Rocky Mount. We should pray that God would work in the ministry of this church to turn the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. We should pray that God would turn the hearts of the disobedient the wisdom of the just. Finally, John's mission. What is the point of all this ministry? Why is God sending a prophet now after all these years to Israel? Why does God suddenly bring a revival? Because that's kind of what happens under John's preaching. You suddenly have a revival of people returning to God. Why is God doing that now? What is God after? Answer, God is working through John to prepare the way for the day of the Lord. And as it turns out, the day of the Lord has two phases. It comes first as the Lord Jesus Christ is born into this world. In a manger, in Bethlehem, and he will come as the Savior, he will come as the Messiah, the one in whom every promise of God made to Israel will come true, but not yet coming in judgment. The day of judgment is still to come. There, there's an already and not yet element to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has already come and that the kingdom has been established. It's being built up as people are being saved from every nation. The work of atonement has been completed and there's a not yet element to the day of the Lord because the day of judgment has not yet come. Well, John was sent to prepare the way for the rescue mission of Jesus Christ. John was sent to prepare the way for that first phase of the day of the Lord. And God is thinking of way more than just Israel. Make sure you hear this. This is really big. God's intention was always to build a kingdom that would include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. God is not going to save people just from Israel. He's going to save millions of millions of people from different nations of which we in this room are a picture. And Jesus is going to accomplish this how? First, through apostles. 
He's going to accomplish this by having followers who learn from him, who are prepared by him, who are trained by him, and then who are sent out in the world. But guess what? Before those men were apostles of Jesus, they were disciples of John. As Calvin puts it, in short, the calling of John had no other design than to secure for Christ a willing ear and to prepare for him disciples. As John went throughout Galilee, preaching the coming of the Messiah, there were men and women who listened and heard and repented. And then they began to follow John. And they learn from John. And they begin waiting for the Messiah. And then there's that day where John bears witness. He sees Jesus on the other side of the river. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then what begins to happen? The disciples of John, they start leaving John to go where? To follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John, these three disciples that we think of at the core of Jesus' ministry, these three men that God used so tremendously so that the gospel is now with us today, Peter, James, and John, they started out as followers of John the Baptist. They learned from John. They were prepared. They were made ready to sit at the feet of Jesus through John the Baptist. See that our God is a God who keeps his promises. See that he, even if it was 400 years before, and now it's all coming to fruition. It's all coming to fulfillment. See the wisdom of God and the way he's working all of this. See that the whole purpose of John's life was to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of a better purpose of one's life than that? His whole life's purpose was to point people to Jesus Well, since we're talking about John, let him still point us to Jesus. Have you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever turned from your sins and placed your trust in the one who was coming, the Messiah? Do you know what it is to have a lasting, deep peace with God because you've trusted in Christ? If there's anybody in this room that is not a Christian, I pray that you will think very carefully about who John was and why he came and that his life and his ministry, as you read about it in the Gospels, would point you to the Messiah and that Jesus would be your Savior and would be your Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.